0: to the solid responder podcast where we share stories from first responders and talk about the past the present and the future in disaster response solid responder highlights key issues in emergency response exploring engaging and educating the emergency response community with featured guests from diverse all-hazard emergency response disciplines listen in as leading experts in the field tell their personal stories of dramatic and dangerous moments, the lessons that they learned and how their skills and leadership were put to the test. Listen in as we talk about taking good medicine to bad places. I'm your host, Joe Hernandez, and the Solid Responder Podcast, squared away, right away. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Solid Responder Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to the show again. This is why we are continuing to grow. It's because of you. Thank you for sharing with your friends and family. And if you love the content, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. This next show is going to be powerful. Today is October the 28th, National First Responder Day. During this day, a national appreciation, organizations, communities, families across the country come together just to say thank you to the firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, police officers, dispatchers, and others who all respond to our crisis. It's a day to honor all of those brave men and women who we know that put their lives on the line every day just to keep us safe when a disaster strikes. First Responders are an essential part of our country. And as a result, they deserve a day of national recognition. Thank you, Congress, for making that happen today. These are the same men and women who are running into danger when everyone else is running out. The importance of National First Responders Day is not only to say thank you, but at least to also understand and help educate others about the unique struggles that many first responders, including the one you're going to hear from and myself, those struggles that many of us face, someone today is going to dial 911 for the first time, or maybe their last. These responders are usually called upon during those callers' worst days in their lives. Firefighters are supposed to be 10 foot tall and bulletproof. (laughs) Society's heroes without weakness. But who's watching out for them? For the fifth year in a row now, firefighter and EMS suicides, including law enforcement officers, are exceeding the rate of death of on-duty by almost a 30% average. And this year, we're following in that similar path. Just this week, we've lost another firefighter a veteran of over 13 years to suicide. My guest and friend is Chris Fields. Chris is a former member of the Oklahoma City Fire Department. Chris joined the fire department back in 1985, promoted all through the ranks and finally retiring, at least from the fire service in 2017, where he served the citizens of Oklahoma City for over 31 years. And depending on our listeners age, many will personally be able to relate to that day and time of our nation in one of the saddest moments when domestic terrorism rocked our country. That was April 19th, 1995 at 9.02 in the morning. Chris was captured in a photo that eventually from that day became an iconic symbol of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 on that April day. His photograph was significant, not only those that viewed it, but also to himself. He was photographed cradling the body of one-year-old Bailey Allman. Chris, now rehired in life, has dedicated and travels to speak to other first responders, corporations and communities, families, He discusses the brutal realities of a life spent responding to citizens in the darkest hours of their lives. He has routinely places others before himself and represents the greater good of all of us. Chris tells the story of his life as a public servant and how that day and a career as a first responder took a toll on his life and his family he suffered in silence for many years as many of us do but now he stands and shares how his faith and family helped him control his life and journey from the suffering in how how he hopes of helping others avoid the failure struggles and the pitfalls he continually encourages them by reaching out personally you can follow chris personally at www.chrisfields.org or traumabehindthebadge.us. I encourage everyone to be a hero to yourself and to your family and reach out and see how Chris and the others from Trauma Behind the Badge could help your organization. And with that, let me introduce you to Chris Fields. Chris Thank you, brother. Welcome to Solid Responder Podcast.
1: Hello, Joe. Thanks for having me, brother. Honored to be here. Honored to be a part of it, especially on on a day like today, honoring first responders from from
0: every walk of the first responder world. So, yeah, man. You uh, you're there. You're you're smiling. That's all that counts. We <laughs> shared some good stories off uh, watching uh, your family stick together like glue. Your, your boys mm-hmm. growing up now, men, oh, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's incredible I, I, uh, being a, a, fa- a grandpa at one point in your life, it has changed my life completely. And, uh, you are someone to look up to on no matter what things we face in life. There are answers. If you are able to reach out and open up to others right. and, uh, this could be a day of celebration saying uh, hats off to the first responders out there like many uh, folks want to do but at the same time i want to say to our first responders out there listening that uh, there's a lot of avenues out there but i want to take you through a story of uh, of chris and uh, what impacted his life and uh, what he's willing to share with us uh, how he's remained connected to this day still and how that has uh, been able to feed him, uh, feed his continual um, positive healing in life. And I know that Chris is definitely going to address uh, three things that continually, from 1995 even to today, in 2021, something that we saw with the Surfside building collapse in Miami Beach, Mm -hmm. the effects and the trigger of sight, smell, and sound. Chris, would you talk to the folks and let them know how you got there? Yeah. Um,
1: it was, a it was a, a long road. Hey, uh, but you know, and when I, when I talk about it, I always, uh, when I, when I get the ability uh, the, the chance and the blessing to go speak to people, I always, you know, spend five or 10 minutes and, and, and talk about, you know, that day, um, that was kind of my, my catalyst, you know, once I, once I, we'll get into it. Once I reached out and got the help, it was, it was what we always talk about is that cumulative trauma over, you know, what ended up being a 31 year career. But up to that point to where I, what I, what I call rock bottom was by 20, 22, 23 years into my career. But, and you know, that was, um, and we'll talk about April 19th real quick, but I just want to say, you know, as far as the accumulative trauma, when I talk about it, we all, in first responder world, no matter what walkover you're in, um, we have to be traumatic, it doesn't have to be a national media covered event. You know it doesn't have to be some kind of natural disaster, man-made disaster. Um, and it's not even always the traumatic. you know, in my thirty one years, almost thirty two years in the fire service, you know I buried like four brothers, you know, lost in the line of duty um those calls you know and along with i always tell people some of the most some of the stuff that hit me the hardest emotionally even on the job um was you know you in the fire service if you make a check the welfare at 6 30 in the morning it's 90 percent of the time it's a it's an elderly person that's passed away in their sleep peacefully you know and yeah. and you go down the hall and you see all their war medals you know some war war ii guy what a great life and well And and in your mind, you're going, you know, that's how I'd like to go peacefully. And, you know, what a great life he lived. Then you have his wife standing in the hallway when you come out and tell her, you know, that he's gone and she puts her head on your shoulder and says, you know, I've, I've, I've woke up with that man every day for 65 years. Like, what do I do? And, you know, to me, that stuff, when you take on their trauma, the compassion fatigue, uh, you know, uh, the best definition I've heard of compassion fatigue is it's the cost of caring for others. And, you know, that's what we do. None of us get in the first responder world to be rich. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, we don't do it to be famous. Um, we do it because, and, and I strongly believe the ones that, the ones that aren't doing it for the right reason, that they don't have that calling because they want to help people. They either wash out before their career, you know, before a 20 or 25 year career, mm-hmm. or those to me are the ones that you see on the job that are, can find no joy in the job at all, you know? Uh Correct if you're not doing it for the right reason, I think it's just like another job you're showing up to, you know, and, and for me, I look forward to, I did, I looked forward to getting up and, and that's why I always 31 years, I was there an hour early before shift change. That's just, that's just how I was wired. And, uh, but you know, what, what kind of tipped the scales for me was April 19th, uh, 1995. Uh, You know, it was a beautiful, I mean, it almost sounds like a storybook. It was a beautiful spring day in Oklahoma, but it was, it was, it was a perfect day. I can always remember it was a Wednesday because at the fire station, uh, you have certain chores you do on certain days. You're there. And that was a yard day and guys were out, uh, mowing and weed eating, and, and, uh, me and the other two officers were, of course the officers don't do nothing. We were standing in the kitchen talking about, uh, breakfast, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. it was nine o'clock and we, we were 10 and five breakfast, 10 dinner, five. That was just the way it was. And, uh, it was nine o'clock nobody even been to the store yet. So that's how I just, we, I can remember the day exactly. You, you didn't have to tell me it was nine o'clock or nine o two. I just, yeah. I knew when it was, yeah. but um, my station was at that time, was 15 blocks North of the Murrow building. Um, I was at a house with uh, an, an engine or pumper, an engine, a rescue ladder and a hazard materials unit. I was the officer on the hazard materials unit that day. <clears throat> so anyway, we, we felt the blast. We, um, I mean, it rattled the station. Um, we, uh, we immediately, you know, once we looked out and saw the plume of smoke from downtown Oklahoma city, it was the car fires, what we were seeing, you know, I think anything else we were seeing was just huge amounts of dust from the concrete and the debris in the air. But the the black smoke was all the car fires and that were burning across the street. And, uh, so we immediately self dispatched ourselves, you know, to the scene. Um, got down there and like i said i tell people a hundred times you know it's just it's you know we you can practice you can prepare we were actually we were actually venturing in to uh usar then training but back then we called it rescue one and rescue two training Mm -hmm. but oklahoma city had had kind of um after so many floods and tornadoes we kind of uh got that itch to establish you know a a USAR, which we do now have a task force and uh but but we were in the infant stages of that doing you know so we're out there moving you know making fulcrum points and doing all this stuff and and practicing <laughs> at the you know, the drill ground with all this stuff and then when you get there and see it and it smacks you in the face it's just uh, it's just something you're totally you know not prepared for um, yeah I mean we we handled it uh, I, I think the Lord every day you know all the USAR teams that did come in from all over the country and, and the way the way we just all kind of, you know, melded together and, and worked together and they respected that it was our town, our city, our citizens. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a, it was just a, it was just a perfect blend. And, uh, so when we got down there, I won't go through every step we took, but probably about a 30 minutes into the incident is when, uh, we were going to the South side, um, to the structure and, to go to the pit area. We hadn't, we eventually g- gave names to geographical areas. As you probably know, you know, the slab, the pit and all this kind of stuff. Sure. So we were going to the South side to, to make entry. And that's when a gentleman, um, I mean, I don't know where he came from. He appeared out of nowhere. It seemed like, and he said, I have a critical infant. And I just, I mean, it was just split second. I said, here, I'll take her. Um, you know, and I think, number one, because, you know, firefighters are trained in first aid. Um, I didn't know at the time this gentleman was an officer, you know, but police officers weren't really trained. In 95, they weren't really into the first aid scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not much now, but more so they're more cross-trained now. But anyway, he handed me uh, Bailey. And the first thing I did was, you know, check her for any signs of life. You know, I had to clear some uh, concrete dust out of her throat. Uh, she had a uh, open skull fracture. And uh, I didn't, I didn't get any signs of life. So I uh, noticed that there was an ambulance across the street. So I walked her across the street and a uh, paramedic was there working on somebody. And I just told him, I, I said, I have a, same thing I heard. I said, I have a critical infant. And he looked up at me and he said, and and the ambulance was full. They had somebody on the inside, on the floor, up on the bench, and then on a the cot a stretcher. And then there was three or four people laying around on the backboard on the ground. And he told me, he said, well, wait just a minute, let me get a blanket. He said, we're not going to put that baby on the ground because that was the, that was the only place. And, and I'll get into it. That's once I found out there was a photo at 11 o'clock that night, that's when the photo was taken. But I'm standing there waiting for him to get the blanket. We, we don't want to get into all the weeds about the photo was actually a really wide angle view and, for me to they cropped it down just to that. So if it was a wide me, you could see everything that was going sure. on. And you know, and I'm just, when he says, hold on, I'll get a blanket. I'm just looking at her thinking, you know, I had a two year old son at home at the time. So I knew she was relatively mm-hmm. close in age. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and Bailey had just turned one the day before, you know, I find all this out, but, um, uh, anyway, I just, I was just looking at her thinking, you know, somebody's world is getting ready to be turned upside down today. And, uh, And I just couldn't fathom that. And then that was so early in the incident that when I'm thinking that, you know, not even realizing that that same emotion or feeling was going to be replayed 167 more times around the building that day by other first responders that did the same thing I did, you know, mine just happened to be caught by an amateur photographer. And uh, so, but after the photo, you know, I, I gave Bailey to the, I mean, after I gave Bailey, to the ambulance attendant. I went and caught up with my crew and we worked to free another lady. Um, unfortunately, we found out she passed away on the way to the hospital. Once we got her out and got her uh, packaged and, and, and ready to go, she, she passed away on the way to the hospital. But that was probably about 11, maybe two hours into the incident. And that was the last live person that me and my crew had any contact with. I know there were some others brought out later that evening but that was the last uh, live person we had any contact with yeah. so we were there till eleven thirty that night we finally got sent back to the station and uh it really wasn't a quiet night once we got back to the station between i think we had a house fire we had first aid calls you know and it was just mm-hmm. but they just wanted everybody to get back and then the, what they would do the rest of that time that three weeks you would go report on your regular duty day they didn't want anybody down there on their day off understandably so. So you report to your duty station, you go down there for a 12 hour shift, 12 or 24, either AM or PM. You're going to be at the bomb site. Mm-hmm. So um, we got back to station and I got a call from dispatch. And that's when I found out about the photo. They asked me, did I carry a baby out of the building? I said, no. I said, a gentleman handed me a baby. Mm-hmm. I said, "Gentleman, I didn't know he was a police officer at the time. He was in like jeans and a t-shirt and, sure. uh, but looking back he did have a hat on that said oklahoma city police and <laughs> i mean it was all he got a gun on his hip but none of that i really this noticed you know so but uh, and and after some lengthy conversation the, the dispatcher which i knew personally he said he said chris uh the ap's fax this photo they want to identify the firefighter in the fo- photo i said well I, I can't see it i don't know if it's me or not and he says man i know it's you you know have the five on the helmet so I said, okay, what's up with it? He said, well, AP is going to run it. And they said, it's going worldwide, you know, hung up from the phone, hung up the phone and guys and girls stations said, what was that about? And just kind of jokingly, you know, I said, you know, apparently I'm going worldwide, you know, totally as firemen fighters do kind of making little jokes about it really. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, the next morning there was no joke, uh, that's when we noticed the newspaper. We had the morning shows on watching the reporting of it. And as all these morning shows were showing headlines around the country, mm-hmm. because if you'll remember early on, it was, uh that was just the time we lived in back then. We weren't thinking domestic terrorism. Yeah. We were thinking international terrorism. Yeah. So, so, you know, there was all these stories about who it was and who it could have been. And, and so it was going all over the world. And every time they showed a different country, different language. That photo was on that newspaper for that, you know, that country and that language. And so I think my first thought was just like, wow, I wonder if that family even knows, you know, about, about that that that's their baby, if they even know they're, because there were still people waiting for their loved ones to be either, you know, taken out, identified or or found or, or whatever the case may be. And, um, I remember talking to my mom that next day, just a little bit saying, you know, telling you that was one of my concerns. Uh, and she said, well, she said, I can tell you this. And of course she's a mother. I'm not, so I wouldn't know. But my mom said, I'll promise you that mother will know that's her baby by looking at that picture. She'll know her legs. She'll know her sock, whatever the case may be. She said, that's just a mother. She'll know, which, you know, that was kind of like, God, that, what a way to find out, you know? Um, through, you know, and I'll say this real quick, me and Aaron, which is Bailey's mother, uh, we are still great friends today. Our family's still, awesome, you know, do the Christmas cards and send each other. And, you know, I've got a son that's gradu- getting ready to graduate from U- University of Oklahoma, my youngest one, and she's got a daughter that's graduating from OU. So we've always stayed in touch. So I've gotten to know or know the story of how, and she did find out that same day, but she didn't know there was a photo taken until it was in the paper the next day. And so that's the, f- she, that's when she knew about it was when it, uh, she stayed at her grandparents' house because she lived in the uh, Regency tower apartments right next to the bombing and sustained damage. So she had to go stay with her grandparents. And that's when she found out. So, um, you know, it was, it was just one of those things where, um, I always tell you, I don't know how the media does it. Of course, I think it's the same everywhere. Local media, you know, they're, they're, they're invested and they've got an interest. So they, they're a little more sensitive national media. Sorry, man, when they come in, they're coming in to get their story and get out. And uh, you know, I think what we call satellite city was already set up. By the time I got home, I had reporters in my front yard and my driveway. I mean, it was just a total change in my life. And, um, and, 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 and then met, meeting Aaron the next day was, uh, you know, here was a 20-year-old single mom that just lost her only child. And, uh, you know, she was actually, you know, comforting me. I, I didn't know what, I, what to say to her what anything. She was just telling me that, you know, it's okay. And, and thank you for, you know, at least I know Bailey's fate. You know, other people are still waiting and they don't know. And she said she could tell I was a father by the way I was holding her. So she appreciated that. And, I mean, just little things that, like I said, this 20, 20 year old single mom was taking care of this, you know, ten foot tall, you know, bulletproof, yeah. you know, firefighter supposedly, and uh, but talking to her, you know, and finding out, and some of the, I started having all this irrational guilt, and it was, uh, and I'm just rambling, so interrupt any time, if you got a oh, question. No, please, or uh, this something.
0: is uh, there's, it's too way way too important okay. for there you're to be I'm any interruption. I'm
1: thinking, I take a <laughs> breath, and think, they might want to say something. It's way but, too uh, important. <laughs> So it was uh, a lot of irrational guilt was, uh, was weighing on me. And it was, you know, irrational guilt's no different than guilt, guilt. Sure. (laughs) It'll weigh, it'll weigh you down and, and, and defeat you either way. And, um, but you know, I was the last one to hold her child, you know, talking to her, um, you know, she didn't get to sell, she didn't get to uh, grieve in, in private because of the media attention. I'm talk, you know, funeral. they had to get police escorts, they had to have, you know, they were yanking report, National Enquirer reporters out of trees, and you know, uh, we had to stop a reporter from trying to run a story that said me and Aaron were together. I mean, it was just all this stuff going on, and you know, and then uh, you know, then the, the, the deal of being singled out, that's not easy when you're yeah. in a, a team sport, team yeah. uh, thing like we are, you know, yeah. um, because I knew that my brothers and sisters went through just as much as I did that day, and for the next, you know, three weeks. Sure. And uh, but I always say, man, the, the support I had from the men and women on the fire department was was a huge, huge help getting me through doing all those interviews. You know, of and, course. And you know, and, and I would do them, and they would say, "Hey, man, you're doing a good job. you represent. representing." I would think, I need to quit doing these. And the fire chief at the time, good guy, Gary Marsh. Mm-hmm he wouldn't do it intentionally, but he would say things. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm a mental midget by now, you know, I'm just with everything going on and I'm so sensitive about everything and this irrational guilt. And he would always call me and say, Hey, Chris. And of course, John Hansen was our PIO at the time. Yeah.
0: That's who uh, I What am a great with. man.
1: Yeah. Great man. May you rest in peace. But, uh, uh, you know, he was a, he was a rock for me, but yeah. chief Mars would call and say, Hey, Chris, you know, so-and-so wants to, uh, do an interview or ask you a couple of questions or this organization in Colorado city wants you to come out and they want to give you this award for the Oklahoma city fire department. Yeah. But he would always end it with saying, but Hey, if you don't want to do it, you just tell me no. And I'll call them. I'll be the bad guy and tell them no. So I'm mm-hmm. doing this. Oh, what's a bad guy. You know, am I too good to do interview? You know, just all yeah. this, sure stuff. you know, and so it's, it's, um, You know, we're. But, you know, I was hired in 1985. I was uh, I was hired by the old smoke eaters, you know, guys showing me how to fight fire and do salvage with no mask on. You know, I can see them by the glow of their cigarette. You know, we're on a house fire. I mean, that's just the guys that raised me on the fire department. And it was I was raised in the 60s and 70s, man. It was suck it up and move on. And, and
0: it it's still to this day is, is existent. Uh, right. Sometimes. It is. It, it's, yeah.
1: it's still, it's still there. Now I use it. Kind of say you still got to suck it up, but now by yeah. sucking up, that means reaching out and going and getting help. And Amen. Get to- <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, so it was just, uh, it was just a stressful time. It was, uh, I felt like I, I took on this role of big brother for Aaron because I mm-hmm. felt responsible for what she was going through. Mm-hmm. So, Every time she would need something, she would call, you know, I would, you know, either be on the phone with her or meeting her at an interview. If she would I always told her, if you are ever doing an interview and you want me there just to be there, let me know. Well, she did, which I'm glad she did, but you know, you can, and then you get that, this is going to sound weird. You get that when you're first doing it, you're doing interview after interview, after interview, after interview, and you go from being emotional about it, talking about it, and all of a sudden you seem like a robot and now you're going I don't want to do one because now people think I have no emotion on this robotic, you know, absolutely. Reaper. And uh, so, um, so this goes on, you know, a couple of four or five years into it, six years after the bombing. And, you know, I'm, I'm running up down the road in the fire service doing things, making calls, house fire, you know, everything we do. And, but I'm noticing, I didn't think anybody else was, but my wife was, I was having these just little mini bouts of depression and, and, want to isolate and, you know, come home from the fire station. And as soon as I get home from the fire station, no matter if we was out all night or slept all night, I would go back to bed at home, you know, kind of found myself, you know, uh, losing interest in things, you know, golf. And I didn't go golf anymore. You know, buddies that would want to go fish and always find a reason not to go. And, it, you know, it was just little mini bouts of a couple of days and go on. I would just suck it up and go on down the road. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I had this worry of, the, the, the men and women that were working underneath me at that time thinking that I couldn't handle, you know, what I was doing. And I did, darn sure didn't want the chiefs and everybody that put me in that position to think I couldn't handle my job. Sure. So I just quietly went on down the road, you know, and, uh, and, and in the monologue, your pre-show deal, you talked about, you know, sights and smells and everything. And for me, that's what it was. Uh, we were, we were, decided to put a pool in the backyard. And uh, I was helping the guys bust out concrete and it started to rain. And a lot of people don't know it rained the night of the Oklahoma City bombing. There you know, that concrete, that wet, con- wet concrete dust smell. Yeah, And that was one of the things that uh, when it started to rain, I was at my backyard. I thought, how that smells just like, mm. it took me back to being inside the building. Sure. Now it didn't, I, you know, I didn't like drop to my knees. I didn't, hyperventilate, nothing. I just in my mind, it's all you needed, but I can, but I can pinpoint that as the day when those many bouts of depression and isolation and quick tempering, they all started to manifest and be a little longer and less that it became where it was the norm, yeah. you know, yeah. and, um, started affecting, you know, my, and by this time, you know, now I've got my, my son that was two, you know, he's eight now and I've got another one. i got a two year, I've got a new son, And so, uh, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job. Nobody, nobody at work still knows, you know, I'm still, I'm still, you know, life of the party, the funny guy at the station. You know, I'm still living up to that reputation I would built. And uh, but at home, it was pretty noticeable. And it it got to be to where, um, I mean, between the fights with my wife and the anger. And it got to be, you know, where my wife basically said, you know, you need to get help or get out. Sure. We can't can't do this anymore. Sure. And for me at that time, my life coach was five or six other firefighters sitting in a strip bar on our days off drinking beer Yeah. who were in the same, you know, same shit I was. Yeah. And that was there. That was, that was who I was getting my life advice from, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very common.
1: Yeah. When she gave me that option, I was gone. I said, I'm out. So, um, you know, that just, that was probably, you get to that. There's in everybody's life, there comes that time when you got to choose which way you're going to go. Yeah. And I had the choice of my pride, my ego or the choice of, you know, love of my family and the profession right. I loved and my friends. Well, I chose the pride and ego route yeah. and that's when things started to spiral, yeah. you know, and it was, uh, we were separated 16 or 17 months, <laughs> um, except for some close friends on the fire service in the fire service. A lot of people didn't know. Cause I did such a good job of, you know, uh, covering it up.
0: Yeah, you know, we're great posers.
1: Uh, lived, lived. You know, several miles away in an apartment, but nobody, you know, nobody knew. Uh, and then, you know, my my drinking increased. My mm-hmm. running around with the wrong people. You know, there was a there was an extramarital affair. There was just all sorts of stuff where I just kept spiraling out of control. And the people I was leaning on were those people that were living the same. In the same world I was, the ones I was pushing away was my my wife and my family and my friends. You know if they were, right. if they would call just to check on me, man, that would mm-hmm. piss me off. I mm-hmm. would get so defensive. They were just calling. I mean, just calling to check on me. Sure. And I, I would I would get defensive, like yeah. I didn't need anybody to check on me. Yeah. And um, so you know, this like I say this goes on for for 15, 16, 17 months, and uh, it all it all kind of came to a to a head one night. I was, I really felt like I myself, you know, because now I'm, I'm depressed every night. I'm sitting over there. Well, I got a buddy who's a doctor who can get me all those Xanax. I need uh, Xanax with Crown Royal was an excellent, you know, yeah. way to, to get through the day, help me so I can get some sleep, get up the next day. So I can go to the fire service, put on my happy face. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't even about I wasn't like having any issues with, uh, you know, the bombing or any career stuff or Trump to me at that point. It had come to where I felt like I couldn't go back and start over again because I'd done so much damage to my family. Um, You know, it was uh, I'd humiliated my wife and my my boys, embarrassed them and, and friends that I had, you know, said things to that, you know, you wouldn't say to your worst enemy. And that's what i had done that's the life i chose and so it came to a head one night and i thought you know what if i drink enough of this and take enough of these and i don't wake up
0: mm-hmm. but
1: everybody, everybody can reset you know and start all over yeah and and i'd like say i was such an ass and so worried about what people thought about me and all that that you know even when i was getting ready to you know it wasn't like i just did it all at once i was just casually you know, just kept drinking kept taking a few more and was thinking it'll look like an accidental overdose. You know, it'll, it'll, everybody will still think, Oh, it wasn't that he couldn't handle it. He was just trying to, you know, relax a little bit. And he took too many, you know, I said, that was my mind. I stayed in mind. I'm going, people still won't think I couldn't handle it, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I, I woke up the next morning and, uh, laying in the floor of my, at this apartment. And I just kind of thought I just had this feeling come over and I thought, you know what, This is this has got to stop. There's no way that I've had the great career I had, that got the great family, that this was my purpose in life. Now, granted, everything now is a blessing. I get to go speak. I could put that when I thought about my purpose in life. I wasn't thinking about that. I thought there's more to me laying on this apartment floor trying to kill myself. There's being a good husband, a good father and a good friend three things I needed to be that I wasn't anymore. And I, uh, it's still emotional for me because my wife, I mean, uh, she'll tell you, she said, I just knew I called her. And of course not all of our conversations weren't all friendly and good those days. But, uh, so I called her and instead of saying, you know, hello, or whatever her expected her response was, what do you want? Which, you know, I, I would probably have been the same way. Mm-hmm. And it was her first words. What do you want? And I said, I want to come home. And she didn't skip a beat, take a breath, nothing. She said, come on. And I just kind of knew right then that, you know, I think everything's going to work out and be okay. And, um and uh, she'll tell, she'll tell people to ask her what made you, and she'll just say, I knew I wasn't dealing with Chris. She said, I could look in his eyes and it was just blank. Yeah. And she'd always say, I knew, I knew it wasn't him, yeah. but, uh but she was at the point. It was, uh, she said, you know, by that time she was already, you know, she'd be praying to God to, you know, take my love away f- for him away from me so sure. I can let him go and get sure. on with my life. And uh, sure. so once once uh, she said, come home and we got things established of what I was going to do, the work I was going to do and need. Uh, I always tell people it wasn't it wasn't an easy road. And uh, it was uh, I went went and saw a couple of counselors, you know, and the first counselor wasn't a, wasn't a match. I mean, it was just, that's why I tell people you can't go to one and say, well, I tried, you know, mm-hmm. I could, uh, I probably thought about it, but you know, I finally went to a treatment center up in Northern California and, mm-hmm. uh, and before I went, you know, I was diagnosed with uh, PTSD, depression, anxiety, all the, all the things you would think. And, uh, and I was introduced to EMDR treatment. Uh, and so I, uh, went to the treatment facility for a couple of weeks, came back here, started, um, uh, going to see a, a counselor that I really hit it off with a little lady named Kathy Thomas, man, she is just the best. Um, and we did EM, some EMDR stuff. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it was just crazy that, uh, and when I, when I talk to people, I always talk about the irrational guilt and that I carried, you know, during the bombing. But I think it's something we first responders always kind of carry because we pride ourselves on, on, you know, getting there and making a bad situation better. Sure. And, and when we can't, what do we do? We always, we have these, uh, you know, we, we second guess. you know, we always have to have the big, uh, meetings, you know, after a second alarm fire, why did it go to a second, you know, just, you know, all these stuff. And, and we do the same thing on medical calls on, shooting is on car absolutely house fire you know anything was there something we could have gotten you know done different and that's right and then we take on the trauma what we see people going through that irrational guilt had been something that i guess i really struggled with the most but and it's funny and uh the emdr i I tell people you know some people it's psychotherapy some people Mm -hmm. think it's some people think it's you know uh it gives you the ability to talk about an event without feeling those those same emotions that you normally do mm-hmm. perfectly normal emotions and, and common emotions, but it helps you get through them without, you know, that breaking down and that, that those same emotions. But yeah. um, when my, when Kathy, my, my counselor, I guess she saw something in me the days we were talking because when we started EMDR, she said we were doing the EMDR therapy she said, what is your biggest traumatic, event that scares you more than anything that you can't get past. Mm-hmm. And I didn't hesitate. I didn't, I I didn't know I would say it. I hadn't said it in 40 something years. I told her, I said, being molested when I was 10 years old. And she, she knew I can talk to her now. She'd say, I knew she said, I could just, by the and actually just by the way I would answer questions and talk about things. She just knew. And when she said that, and that was my response to her, and that was more that irrational guilt I've been carrying since I was yeah. 10 years old, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, it, it would be like, uh, I can remember days sitting at the fire station around all the guys, you know, and a news story would come on about a child, you know, being uh, molested or abused or whatever. And, you know, firefighters were were cool were macho, you know, and most of them would say 10 years old. I'll tell yeah. you what, I'm getting away from that dude. I guarantee you ain't nobody, you know, and in your mind, you're shinking in your chair, like, okay, I should have done something, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just one of those things. It's just, but that opened the door for to deal with so much unprocessed and accumulated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, like I say, and, and what I've learned and I, and I still have, I tell people it, it doesn't just cause you go to, you know, if you reach out, it doesn't mean you're gonna be diagnosed with anything, you're not gonna to have to miss work, you're not gonna to have to
0: oh go no, away no to, yeah.
1: go away to a clinic, but but it could it could save your life, you know, it could uh it to uh yeah. save your family, save your career. That's right. And I still That's have right. days. I still struggle with forgiving myself for the for the things I did to my family and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh but I've learned so much better ways to cope with uh, cope with those days. Like if I got to come here in my office and shut the door and have a little, put some tunes on, have a little cry session. That's what I do. If I need to tell my wife, Hey, I need 30 or 45 minutes just to go in here and veg out and then we can do whatever, you know, I mean, so I've just learned, you know, I go play golf now, you know, if my brother-in-law wants to go to the lake, go fish, we'll go fish stuff. Mm -hmm. I had deprived myself of, you know, thinking I didn't either, I didn't have the want to, to do it. That's I right. feel like I should be out doing it, you know, and enjoying my life while, you know, aaron has got to go with what she's going through, you know, and just, you just, it's just a, it's just crazy how the mind takes over. So, but it, uh, but it hasn't been an easy road, but man, I, I, it's easy now because I have such great coping mechanisms and I, the communication between me and my wife is, Tenfold from where it was, and that's the. And I always tell people, you know, as, as first responders, it doesn't matter what yeah. agency you're in, we've got to reach. We've got to
0: take care of each other. Uh, um, absolutely. I call it trauma timeout. Uh, huh? I call it trauma timeout. Yeah, we, we've yeah. got to take. And, and we've got to take it out. Yeah,
1: and, and reason being, like I tell people, you know, it's just, it's not that your chiefs and the city don't care. I mean, no. they've got a job to do. It's the nature of the beast, but when you're gone, you're gone. You know, I tell people, I did almost 32 years with the fire department. I retired March 1st of 2017 that day at the station, you know, Peep Riggs came by and we had cake. We had a great retirement party. March 2nd, they promoted somebody and
0: put them in my seat and the fire mm-hmm. department hadn't missed a beat. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and that's, and that's just, that's just I, the way it is. And I, I'm glad you said that to a certain degree because, I don't want those that are listening, uh, first responders that may listen to this that are still on the job, I don't want them to wait until we reach a certain point as you have, as I have, as many of us have, Mm -hmm. maybe even into retirement. Don't wait that long. It's all right now. It's it's acceptable now for you to step forward. You know, he talks, uh, when Chris mentioned to you all out there, back in 1995, this was the beginning. We didn't even have cell phones back there. Mm-hmm. We talked about the, Very few. <laughs> the the big, big giant uh, radar towers. We had uh, the communications. They, they set up AT&T, set up a, a phone bank so that the responders from the different federal teams that came there to assist the Oklahoma City Fire Department and Edmond and, and those surrounding departments out there, right. um, give us a way to contact our significant others our wives our husbands and say hey we're okay because the day of social media didn't exist and it it was so long ago to a certain degree and as chris mentioned this was a crime scene you know the the pictures that we took there uh during that uh rescue and recovery efforts were done with the old instamatic uh, kodak cameras and uh Nobody went home with any pictures. Uh, the FBI very uh, earnestly uh, collected all of those cameras oh, yeah. uh, because of the photographs that were in there and because of actually an ongoing criminal investigation. And we didn't get those pictures back for, oh, I don't, I, I remember going back and doing a class there with now chief, uh, uh, the, the, the differences we were talking about now, now chief Mike Walker. And who, uh, who was who was
1: <laughs> a firefighter on the back of my rig that day.
0: Incredible. You know, yeah. and now helps lead the USAR team. And we were doing yeah. the early days of USAR training in there. Other friends that I met out there, Steve Bacune and Mike Tucci, yeah. and and as we mentioned, uh Bacune um,
1: retired. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, he did. Yeah. Finally. Last time I saw him was uh uh, during a football game uh, at Oklahoma City, my son played for Army at uh, West Point and, uh, a few oh, years okay. ago. They got to play uh, Oklahoma, and it was a very close game for a couple overtimes yes. there.
1: <laughs> As a season ticket
0: holder, I can tell you, it was <laughs> way too close. <laughs> but but uh, that scene, it, 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 people don't remember, that photograph brought fame, and it brought pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two don't mix together. Um, no. You had to climb through that. You had to to fight your way through. Um, I, I'm proud to say that I've got 42 years. We, we saw, you saw how important it was to pick up that phone and say, I want to come home. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, call in your friend, call in your buddy, call in whoever you need to. I need to talk to you now. Um, you talked about the, the, the trigger was phenomenal for you. Right. Um,
1: and and what i want to say about that that reaching out real quick and i always like to tell people please those the very same people that i was kicking in the teeth and telling leave me alone when i reached out those were the same those are the same people we're friends with today yeah those are the same couples we run around with and so it's just amazing when you reach out that how many people and even the ones that you've written off Mm -hmm. um are there to help you and you know and i i tell people you know how the fire department police whatever how they move on. And you're, you're basically a number, you know, don't get caught. And I don't say that to take away from the job. Number one, I did it for 32 years. So I loved it. But I say, you know, you, a good friend of mine, Jay Dobbins, he always used to say, you know, he chose, he chose his legacy for me. I chose my legacy with the fire department over the legacy with my family and my friends. And that's, that's not where you want. Now, when I say that, I don't, I don't, Take away from those young guys, man. You got something to contribute to the fire service? That's great. You invent something that helps fire service or law enforcement or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying you don't strive to be the best at your job, but I'm saying when at the end of the day, yeah, man, it's that legacy that you leave with your family and friends um, is going to be a, mean a lot to mean a lot more to you when you're sitting around on your couch or you're at the lake out on your boat just thinking that life you spent with your family and friends is going to mean so much more and be so much more important to you than the legacy you left with, you know, the Oklahoma city fire department.
0: Absolutely. And that incident, as long ago as it was, was a catalyst for the FEMA program, the urban search and rescue program to begin. It was Tom and Ann Carr, uh, Maryland task force one, who began a family support, portion in the USAR of saying how important it is to continually ask questions, to continually monitor our loved ones, to continue that support on there. Uh, Sadly to say is there's new curriculum rewrite going on right now and they feel that that might not be as pertinent to be put in there and I I argue that point just because right. that that pain is not going away and it, and it doesn't change for those individuals as well. And that family support, I got to speak with Dave Bain. He's a chief in Canada in Alberta, and they mimicked a lot of the stuff with our USAR, of course, why, yeah. why re- repeat what it's, what's written in? So Canada USAR is basically that way. And he said, we do one extra thing. And I said, what is that? And he said, instead of calling you guys, to see how you're doing like in the next couple of days after the bad call or the bad event, we call your spouse. Mm-hmm. We don't call you, and I was like, I like that. We <laughs> ask them, how's he doing? How's yeah. she doing? How, how, how's their anger? How's their sleep? How's their, that's the person you wanna to talk to. You know, it's the, the spouses of, of use are the spouses of the fire department or the police department, whether it's a female or a male. And the stories that they can tell, as you said, Uh, what they've gone through and what we've put them through. And should we not only be educating ourselves, Chris, in the field of first response, but educating to our family and our kids, especially on what to expect when these folks come home, Uh, the turmoil, you mentioned it, the anger, the the catalyst that caused you to just fly over the end, Uh, the anger, uh, I, I think I don't, I wasn't as angry coming back from there, um, but the World Trade Center uh, was right. one of those that just continued. And, of course, we could call it PTSD. We can call it complex PTSD. Yeah. We can call it, you know, uh, uh, incident stress management, and we can call it extended incident stress management. There's so many names for a common issue that we're having. There's some listeners that are that were on, uh, James Salazar and a few others that were asking questions. Uh, they wanted uh, to us to let you know that uh, – you're really respected out there, of course, in the community. You've helped a lot of people heal, even though you don't think that. Um, I want to be able to tell people that you that they're going to continue to have healing out there because of what you're doing and Trauma Behind the Badge is doing and how right. Solid Responder can help and get that done and how it is to get dressed every day and not only go back to, to the job, as you said, and meeting people on their worst days of their lives. That's and uh, the same thing with now having to help that older person put her husband in a state of rest. Uh, do you want to comb his hair? What do you mean? Yeah, sure. Would you like to comb his hair before <laughs> they come get him? You know, he's been expired for a little while. And do you have anyone that we can help call? Right. Well, you know, I see a note, a list on the refrigerator. is, And you know how that goes. And yeah. that little bit that you said, goes a long way. And I hope that there are a lot of folks that were listening out there that pick up on that and say, I want this job to be for me. I want it to be fun. I want it to be motivating and I want it to be significant. And to do that, you have to put your own personal self in that person's shoe. As you said, they're lost. They don't know what's going on. And you are that only link. Instead of saying, have a great day. I'm sorry for your loss and leaving can't we stay and do a little bit more yeah. and help them get through that sight smell and sound and give them a little trauma timeout with what they're doing
1: and and i, I think that's important too like I say you know we pride ourselves on you know getting there and making a bad situation better and i think that's why you see law enforcement you see firefighters you, you always see these little stories posted somewhere about how you know they made the husband on a heart attack two days ago and he didn't make it two days later, there's firefighters over mowing their yard for him or yeah. you know, helping them build a, a deck or, you know, a fin- we, we had one where we helped a lady finish a ramp for her wheelchair, you know, oh, cause her husband God. couldn't do it, you know, yeah. just things like that. And that's our, that's our way of getting that feeling like we d- actually did more, but you know, and it's, uh, I always say it's so important that we got to take care of each other, reach out, you know, don't be scared to ask somebody if they're okay. Um, that's right. And it all starts with, man, you got to be, it starts with the leadership. You know, we, me, me and the trial tra- behind the badge guys, we were at a department and the chief looked at us and he said, because Chris Scallum, one of the guys on there who wrote like all Virginia's peer support stuff. He's a retired Norfolk, Virginia cop, great guy, sure, master's in psychology, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he said, you know, it has to start with you guys, the top of leadership. And this chief interrupts and says, I disagree. I think it has to start at the bottom. And Chris said, no, that's a coup. You know, if yes. if it started at the bottom, that's a coup. So, yep. and when I say that leadership, that was another thing that I, we had a couple of uh, firefighters, you know, CISM, CISD, where I call it was pretty new in 1995. Mm-hmm. We had a group. They would send us there before we went back to the station. And I remember the first night they sent us, they said, Hey, we just need you to go through CISM. I looked at my personnel and to this day, I think, God, what did I, did I stunt anybody's healing because I looked at them and said, Hey, we're going to go through there. I ain't saying nothing, but if y'all don't, well, all I did was they're going to, just like I was scared of what my superiors thought of me Mm -hmm. when I looked at them and said, Hey, y'all do what you want to do, but I'm not going to say nothing. I ain't talking. Well, you know, that was immediately that just put the clamps on them. And, you know, I don't know, you know, and I've talked to several of them. I've even apologized to some of them for it. Um, uh, Because I just thought, you know, that was, as I look back 26 years ago, 27, 26, as a leader, you know, I, I I should have do it different now, of course, but so it's just thing, you know, as leaders, we have to have to be there. And, um, another real quick, another guy on the, uh, problem behind the badge team is a guy named Raul Rebus. He's a retired Orlando police department SWAT. He's the one that took down the pulse nightclub shooter. Okay. and, when they were going through all their stuff he said what was what made it great for them and their debriefings was their big bad captain he said a bad man he said yeah. was the first one to stand up and talk in front of the group about what he was experiencing and his feeling and he said it just
0: opened it up for everybody so, Excellent. so Excellent. people say that lead. that's i mean I, that's how yeah. leaders lead leaders yeah. lead but you know i mean by example, 100%. I, I, I don't hold any tears back. I'm a crier now, and and it is what oh. it is. Uh, I never thought to this day I'd even be a gold star father, uh, <laughs> losing a son uh, yeah. during uh, the Afghan war. And the, the family support is so important, oh. getting this message out. As a solid responder, I love how you really focus on Isaiah 6-8. You made it part of your website. You, mm-hmm. uh, you made it part of your mantra and it, uh, it really falls so well with, uh, with what we do, with, with what you do. There's a lot of folks out there that help our jobs get better. There's a mm-hmm. lot of folks out there that help us complete a job and even uh, are looking to make our jobs easier, not only in the, in the world of resources for us as far as help in mental health, but also, on the job as far as equipment, a lot of manufacturers and vendors, right. and I believe that they are going to be reaching out and thanking the first responders on national first responder day right. uh for their work and uh man, I can't say enough, Chris, I want to thank you brother uh oh, you bet. i, I, I when I get back out right. there i'm supposed I'm supposed to go out to crisis city, so I'll make sure that we stop by and uh have some dinner together and and some good prayer and uh yeah, definitely. Uh, Definitely. I, I, you know, and, I, and and real
1: real quick, I just want to say, you know, people, yes, please. When as much as we try to do it, you're not going to heal by yourself. It takes that human connection. Um, great book by Joshua Mance called uh, Beauty of a Darker Soul, I think. I can't remember. It's Joshua Mance. Look it up. But that's what he talks about, his healing through human connection. And you can't have that human connection unless, okay. you, unless you reach out. And like for me, I reached out and was shocked that the people that were reaching back out were the same ones that I had, you know,
0: pushed away. So I just encourage everybody to, uh, to reach out. That's right. And for those of you that want to connect back with uh, Chris, please remember, we'll have it on our show notes. And uh, if you want to hear Chris live uh, we're hoping that he comes out uh, May 17th through the 19th to the MSOC and SUSAR medical special operations Mm -hmm. and state urban search and rescue live conference. In Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, along with uh, some folks from Trauma Behind the Badge and uh, and what they have to say, Hero, thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. God bless it. you. Okay. Absolutely, and have a wonderful night. To those listening, thank you, thank you and uh, have a wonderful night. Solid responder, Trauma Timeout. Solid responders, listen. The message here from Chris Field was not only the incredible journey he has endured as a first responder, but also how one can overcome the stigma of reaching out when in need. And the folks at Trauma Behind the Badge are all about that. If you or someone you know would like to talk with one of us personally, we're open. You can reach out to Chris at chrisfields.org or myself at info at medspecops.org. Thank you for joining us on the Solid Responder Podcast. Good night.